Yes, we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It's called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toladano. John Wall doesn't need no introduction. It's an insider's look at the NBA and culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick of the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall, will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. The I Am Rappaport Stereo Stereo Podcast. Live. You're down with Rappaport. Yes, I am. 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 You better tune in. I am Rappaport.com. Because every single podcast, you know he drops bombs. I seen him on set. A seasoned vet with true talent. Catch him on his way to CrossFit. Rocking the new balance. He asked me to do the track because he know I rhyme elite. But I'm just waiting for the Robert De Niro line of the week. Breakfast of champions. Toasted bagel, cream cheese, and locks. This is I am Rappaport. The show never stops. You might catch him out in public, stretching his knees. But if you don't listen to the show, yo, wiggle, please. Wiggle, please. I am. What's up? This is Michael Rapport. I got a brand new I Am Rapport stereo podcast. Me and G Moody are coming to terms with Tom Brady's greatness. All our thoughts on the women's march and the use of the B word as a term of endearment and so much more. Plus, we got special guest, literally. One of the most world-renowned film critics of all time from the Chicago Sun-Times. My main man, Richard Roper. The Oscar nominations are out. Richard Roper's breaking down all the films from 2017. The films you've seen, the films you should have seen, and so much more. He also covered Michael Jordan throughout most of his career in Chicago. From the Chicago Sun-Times, one of the best movie critics in the whole world. My main man, Richard Roper. All film, everything. But first... Me and G. Moody, last name rhymes with duty, are going to do our thing. It's the I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Miles, Jordan, yo, let me get some funk. All right, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Lisa. 
as an innovative mattress company who has completely improved that dreaded old school miserable mattress buying experience so much so we invented a tagline for them they sent me a mattress that is freaking fantastic life is good with elisa life is good with elisa mattress Listen, let's be honest. No one wants to spend hours upon hours visiting these weird, funny-smelling, awkward showrooms where you're forced to spend thousands of dollars on a subpar mattress. But thanks to Lisa, they have changed the game so you can now enjoy the comfort of a luxury mattress at a fraction of the price. The Lisa mattress starts at just $525, $525. It is quickly and conveniently ordered online, made to order, and shipped compressed in a box to your door. Within days, unboxing the mattress, which is half the fun, took me less than five minutes. Listen, I know it's weird to order something online. That's why Lisa provides a 100-night risk-free trial, along with free shipping so that you could properly try out the mattress in the comfort of your own home. You don't like it? You have a problem with it? Lisa will make the refund everything for free. Go to Lisa, L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash barstool. That's Lisa dot com forward slash barstool today to receive an exclusive $100 off the Lisa mattress that is just right for you. Listen, wrap a pack, stoolies, go out there, go to lisa.com forward slash barstool and get the best mattress at the best price at lisa.com. Yes, two, one, two. Yes, there it is. There it is. Yo, is this thing on? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, it's on. It's on. This is the I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast coming live and direct. My name is Michael Rappaport. I am here with G. Moody, whose last name rhymes with duty. That's a fact. Yep. <laughs> For sure. We are the Disco 2, a.k.a. the Malachi Brothers. <laughs> and uh, let's just jump into it. Uh, how yeah. you feeling, Mr. Moody? I feel good, man. I feel good. Good football games on the other day. Uh, the greatest quarterback ever is Mr. Brady. Period. Period. I mean, there's, he was already the greatest quarterback, and yeah. Uh, I mean, the good thing about the Jaguars for their summer vacation is that they didn't do anything to lose the game. Like the New Orleans Saints, when they lost to Minnesota, they have to live with that, and that player has to live with that. Yeah. The good thing about the Jaguars is they played very well. Blake Bortles uh, did... The very best he could do without letting the fact that he's Blake Bortles ruin the game. <laughs> um, their defense was physical. Leonard Fournette was pounding through, and they had him. It's just the fucking New England Patriots, man. They just... Yeah, that's a quarterback. That is a quarterback. That When, when, when he gets in, the other players know... We have a chance. Like, it don't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, the score is about the time, and he's so accurate. Yo, 
And he has a history of this. This is no aberration. So History? It's like a, a, a Friday the 13th movie or a Halloween movie. Like, you inevitably know Jason or Michael Myers is coming with the axe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the crazy thing is Gronkowski didn't play the second half of the game. People tend to forget that Gronkowski didn't even play the Super Bowl last year, the 28-3 Super Bowl. He's their best offensive player. Right. It's Deion Lewis, James White. You know, listen, we could sit here and bitch and moan about some of the calls. And, of course, there were some of the calls. Um, you know, we could bitch and moan about that that fumble that was questioned yeah. because the fumble recovery that uh, was whistled, if they had not whistled and stopped the play, homeboy was taking it to the house. Yeah. But these are yeah. all the, the coulda, woulda, shoulda. In every game versus the Patriots, there's always a coulda, woulda, shoulda. But like I said from the beginning, the Jaguars didn't blow the game. The Patriots won. Yeah. yeah. And, and you could you gotta, feel yeah. the writing on the wall. You could, you could feel it. You could feel yep. Jason coming back with the yep. shovel or the chainsaw or whatever, the daggers, and you just knew it was coming. If you don't kill that motherfucker completely – and bury him in cement under the fucking stadium. He's coming back. Yeah. Yeah. There's a history of that. <laughs> Except with our guys. You don't come back with the no. New York fucking no. Giants. No. No. That didn't happen. Two times. Yeah. Twice. Two fucking times. Tommy Coughlin. And he almost got him this time. Did yeah. you see did you see the post game with Bill Belichick? He's out there with his with his cut off sleeveless sweatshirt. Right, right. Did you see I him? It. Yeah, I don't like his, his 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 demeanor at the press conference. He tried to ice grill the reporters. I I, I hate that. I, I don't like that, man. Me neither. I don't I know that. who I gotta blow to get myself <laughs> an NFL press pass. Because I can tell you one thing: you you're not gonna give me all the side talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah, having we it, Bill that. Belichick. I'm letting you know right now. Not, that's that's not happening. Right. Of course, the Philadelphia Eagles beat the dog snot out of the Minnesota Vikings. And I'll tell you, for me, the Minnesota Vikings were the team I wanted. Uh, I have affection for the city of Minnesota. Uh, me and G. Moody spent months out there, and I believe it was 1996, Filming yep. the movie Beautiful Girls. Spent a lot of time at the club Glam Slam. Um, the show. <laughs> you know, it was a great time working out there. Great time shooting out there. Um, and we went to a bunch of Minnesota Timberwolves games. This is in the J.R. Ryder. Uh-huh. Christian Leitner. Kevin Garnett era. Wasn't Leitner a Timberwolf? I think so, yeah. Leitner was one, yeah. Um, Minnesota wasn't ready for primetime. Philadelphia beat their asses. As I told you, as much as I love the city of Philadelphia, Rocky Balboa, Julius Irvin, Daryl Dawkins, World Be Free, George McGinnis, Moses Malone, Bobby Jones, Andrew Toney, of course, AI, cannot root for the Philadelphia Eagles. Right. Can't do it. Yeah, especially their fans, man. Yo, 
The fans out there beating up people with Minnesota Vikings. Yo, this is 2018, man. Cut that fucking shit out, man. Yeah. Throwing full, full beer cans at, at people just because they're wearing Minnesota jerseys. Well, yo, what kind of shit is that, man? That's some that's bullshit. Not, I, that's I don't not support football. it. Yeah. Yo, NFL need to step in, man. Yeah, they, they need to shut that shit down. Yeah, that's savage shit, man. We can't. I come to the game with my family on some uh, wearing another jersey just to kind of, and you're going to throw fucking beer at, at me? Beating people up. That's, that's not yeah. dope, jumping people. Because y'all won? Yo, Brady about to wax that ass in the Super Bowl. We all know it. <laughs> Yo, Tom Brady is, is, <laughs> this is his, this is his domain. I don't know what to do. I'm not rooting for, for, for the Eagles. I can't root for the New England Patriots. As far as I'm concerned, you know, this can be like watching the Grammys or some shit. I'm going to watch the game. I'm not going to get emotionally involved. I didn't think, I got to tell you, G. What up? I watched the game with uh, Jordan and Miles. Uh, uh-huh. The I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast production team. And the night before, I was like, I really think the Jaguars have a real shot. And they had a real shot. Me too. I thought they were going to do it. But I was pretty fucked up after that loss. I was, I was, pretty, I was pretty rocked. Right. I, I, I think I, they're going to lose. Because you start thinking, maybe it's over. Yeah. Just like last year during the Super Bowl, maybe it's over. I remember I actually said these exact words. During the Super Bowl, ding dong, the bitch is dead, the bitch is dead, the bitch yeah. is dead. Ding <laughs> dong, the wicked bitch is dead. In reference to Tom Brady. I was wrong again. Over the weekend, they had a big, big, big feminist women's march. Shout out to all the women. Yeah. Shout out to all the men out there who marched. I'm, I tried to get myself one of those pussy power hats online. I can't find it. I want to wear one of those pussy power hats. And I hate to use that word, but they that's what they call it, right? Everything is, is, is all good. You could use it. Right. And, and you know, women calling each other bitches, I, I don't support it. Um, you that's know, we could, get do. A, we could get ahead of this thing, just like black people calling each other the N-word. If social media had existed when this started, we could get ahead of it. Because women are calling each other bitches. They're doing it like the same way black folks tend to use the N-word. And listen, who am I to say whether or not motherfuckers should be calling each other that as a, you know, a mating call, as a greeting call? As a term of endearment, and women are now bitch this, bitch this. I'm a boss bitch. Six hundred thousand bitches out here, you know, in, the, in 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 L.A. I don't, I don't like it. You know, if they're doing it, you know, let them do it. I don't uh, do that. But if they, if that's what how they want to rock, if that's how they want to show that whatever their agenda is, I, I, hey, do whatever. Uh, it's best. If, yeah, if, if you're comfortable doing it. Yeah, if you think calling another woman a bitch is somehow empowering you, hey, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> and, and then we have all this 
this, uh, there were a bunch of signs. I, I posted this sign of, of this woman holding a picture on my Instagram. Caused a lot of uproar. You never know what's going to cause uproar. I posted this sign. Uh, this, this girl was holding a sign that said, Hey, white girls, you are also the problem. Because since Trump, because, you know, they were calling this, this, this march a women's march. Yeah. And, and then they were also calling this an anti-Trump march. It was like an all-encompassing march. <laughs> and I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. First of all, if you didn't vote in the presidential election, you should not be allowed to march. Okay? <laughs> right. Number that one, makes sense. if you didn't vote, you should not be allowed to march in any anti-presidential anything. That makes sense. And, you know, they're saying, hey, white girls, you're also the problem. I posted another picture of a, a, a and apparently this woman got, she got really upset because this girl's about as white as me. I actually heard from the girl and she told me she was Latin and I, I apologized to her in DM because, you know, I usually go off on people. And I say, oh, I apologize. I didn't mean to do that. And then she went off on me more and more. And I said, hey, oh. sweetheart, I said, hey, hey crazy lady. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, Boy. she started talking to me like, oh, I'm, and I'm a white racist and all this shit because she's Latin. I said, listen, crazy. And she posted my apology, but she didn't post the part when I said, take a fucking walk, crazy lady. Oh, she left that out. Yeah, and- she has some little business. She's trying to use me, the gringo man, dingo, to get ahead in business. Uh, trust me. Trust me. You're not going to want to do that, sugar tits, because I'm not the guy. You, you, yeah, you should have said, well, who do you identify as on the fucking census? I guarantee you she said white. Yeah. <laughs> guarantee you. Um, and I posted, so then I posted another picture because it wasn't about who was holding the picture. This, this Latino chick was very pale skinned. I mean, like uh-huh. pale, like the pale of my ass. And let me tell you something, Moody, you've never seen my ass. But as white as my right. face is, the sun has never hit my ass. It's beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. I mean, see-through, like oatmeal mm. color. My ass is oatmeal colored white. See your blood running through. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, then I posted another picture of uh, definitely a white woman, and she said, fuck white feminism. Mm. So there's like feminism, and then there's anti-white feminism. There's white feminism on white feminism crime. <laughs> they're beefing with each other yeah. and this all stems from from the statistics of the white more white women voted for Donald Trump than more white women voted for Hillary Trump Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton and now white women are calling out other white women and I want to tell these fucking these nut jobs to shut their mouth. Yeah. Because they're yeah. like, oh, there's white feminism, intersectional feminism. <laughs> there's tri-state feminism d- d- divided by two to the square root of one. <laughs> it's a bunch of fucking feminists trying to outsmart other feminists. And ultimately, the people need to pay attention to not... The white women that voted for Trump. They right. need to pay attention to the white men, the black men, the white women, the Spanish women, the Spanish men, the Asians, the Asian. 
Every single person who didn't vote at all. Yeah, what kind of feminism is that? Because because the point is is that there's so many people that didn't vote at all. And they're the fucking problem. And people are like, well, in Alabama, black women won the vote. The Alabama election that just happened, everybody voted. It doesn't have to do with the black women voting. Everybody fucking voted. Obviously, they're saying, well, the black woman won it for for homeboy. And that's great. Black people could swing the vote for the presidential election. I want to know the numbers on the people that didn't vote. Because if you didn't vote... You're the fucking problem. Not the white women that voted for Trump. We know that. But there's millions, literally millions of people that did not vote at all. And they're the fuck-ups. And they come in all races, all shades, all colors, and it's men and fucking women. All this like, oh, white women, you're the problem. I watched the Bill Maher show. They're like, white men this, white men that. Shut the fuck up. This is like some sort of way... That white guilt, sort of like you have like this white guilt and it's like these these hipster fucking white fucks, they somehow think they're conscious and woke by calling out other white people. You sound ridiculous. That's like the way they're like, oh, you know, I'm so woke, I'm conscious. Like, I'm white, but I'm calling out the other white people. <laughs> That's the fight. It's the target is the white male. That's that's it. That's the fight. It's the white female against the white male. And everybody's just fucking like pointing fingers at each other. White women are saying, fuck white feminism at a feminist march. The fuck is going on here? Yo, let them stay out there and do all that foolishness. Let everybody just get their shit together and do what they got to do. Let these motherfuckers fight all that crazy shit. I don't even pay attention to it. You know, and sitting there watching the actresses go on and on and on and on. Yeah, and they're, same old shit. You know, shit. it's like they have the greatest speeches. They're actresses. Of course, they're going to have great, compelling speeches. They're fucking actresses. I could give a two shits what these people are saying. I want right. to hear from the regular people, man. There's maybe 150 actresses in Hollywood who you even fucking could list as, like in a name at the most. Yeah, they used this moment. They're going to use that. (laughs) Then they had the SAG Awards the other night, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, and they had all women. Yeah, they discriminated against against men. Like, what what does that show? Like, we're going to support all women by eliminating men? Yeah, fuck the men. Like, listen, women power, pussy power, to quote the, the women at the march. I could say pussy power. If you could say it. I support women 100%, man. But when you start getting all, oh, it's white feminism and this type intersectional, goodbye. Yeah, it's too much, man. And they're feminists are pointing fingers at the other feminists and this kind of feminist and white feminism is fucking it up for all the other feminists. Shut up. Right. Take your fucking pussy power hat. And get the fuck out of my pizzeria. (laughs) Morgan Freeman got his Lifetime Achievement Award. Listen, Morgan Freeman's got dirt on him. And he's played, yeah, I saw that. Hey, 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 Morgan Freeman, listen. 
You slid under the radar for a long time, Duke. He went up there and he's like trying to talk slick. He's like, oh, this yeah. statue from behind, it's good. But then in the front, yeah, it's representing men. Let me tell you something, crowd. Morgan Freeman. Unless you come up with a statue that doesn't have a man or a woman, nobody wants a statue with a cock and tits. <laughs> nobody wants a statue, a SAG award, with a big cock and balls and some tits sitting in right. their living room. Like the, right. like the Oscar. Well, what are we going to do? Change the Oscar to the uh, to the to the, to the Mary Beths? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, he played we're changing to the crowd. the Oscar to the Mary Beths. This is discriminating against women. This is, nope. this is not what this is not this is not sex slave. This is not sex trafficking. This is not, you know, women being, you know, uh, shut down in other countries the way they're abused right. in other countries. Right. Hollywood. Oh, we can't have the Oscar be called the Oscar. It needs to be more inclusive. Yo, man. The American woman is the most free, freest woman on the planet. Think about those Islamic countries where where the women just got the right to drive. You know, I had some women talking greasy on my social media. You know my social media rules, G. Yeah. You if had you, to reiterate. If you come on my social media and you're talking greasy, you're talking out of pocket. The only thing I see, you see me, you know me. You see me on the TV, you see me all up in the videos. You know everything about me. All I see is an avatar. My social media policy is I go off what I see on your avatar, and if there's anything on your page that I could see, I'm going in. So I'm talking about you, talking about your pops. I seen somebody popping shit the other day. He looked like he was laying next to a cadaver. He said, that's my <laughs> father. I said, well, your father looks fucking dead, Duke. Mm. <laughs> Damn. You, he's like, you're too, that's my father. I said, that's right. I know it's your father. And he looks dead as shit. Yeah. You want to pop shit. Fuck your pops, money. <laughs> I had some clown on my Facebook talking out of pocket, talking about his son, and then he's catching feelings. Oh, my son was born. I don't give a fuck how he was born. Word. You're talking shit. If your son has a disability, you should find some serenity. And some appreciation and life than to come on my page and call me a black loving this. Oh. And a, it's always that. It's always that. You think you're black. Yeah. And then when I talk about your son, I'm looking at Shorty. I'm looking <laughs> at Shorty. He's on your avatar picture. Shorty looks fucked up. I don't yeah. And then you're going to, oh, yo, that's fucked up, bro. Bro. That, when, bro. that fucking bro. bro me, Duke. Yeah. I give a fuck about Shorty. Mm. Since That's your right. son was born with a handicap, you would think, you would think you wouldn't be worried about me thinking I'm black. Right. You would think you would have a, a more peaceful, more appreciative way about you. So you want me to be nice to your son because Shorty is cockeyed and born that way. Yeah. But you think it's okay to come on my page and talk out of pocket. Nah, it don't work like that, dude. Nah. Yeah, like they ass up. I light them up, and they catch feelings. They soft. That's my father. Your father looks fucked up. Word. You, you look like you're taking a picture next to a dead guy. I don't give a fuck yeah. what it is. Right. Why you put your pops looking like that up there? You, 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 why you put your pop? Put a better picture <laughs> of your father up there. You want people to think you're laying next to your father and he's dead? 
That's right. <laughs> Maybe you Go want ahead. that. Well, you got it. You got it from me. Some <laughs> other dude talking greasy from Australia. Damn. You want to be black so bad. Oh. Clicked on his avatar, and I said, your girl looks like your sister. You fucking your sister, Duke? <laughs> He's backpedaling. Hey, yeah. hey, hey, hey. No, bro, bro, bro. Yeah. This is my personal policy. I put it on my Twitter. I put it on my Instagram. You saw the shame game. You know how we get down. That's right. They obsessed with us. They love, they obsessed with black folks. Remember oh I told you. Oh, they obsessed with black people. <laughs> the hundreds of times that I've been told that I think I'm black, <laughs> I would say 1% of that in my whole life has been said by black people. I, I know. It's these, these guys are obsessed with black people, man. It's, I, it's amazing. I, and you know what, Gerald? I, I hate to bring it up, but, but people think I'm doing it as a badge of honor. I'm doing it as like, I'm explaining it in a way because I, people don't understand. I spent in time in Harlem and in Brooklyn, in the, the quote-unquote toughest part of Brooklyn. That doesn't mean I was tough. I was looked after. Right. But of all the shit talking that we did and where I honed my skills to become a world-renowned shit talker, in the streets of New York, 99.9% .9 of the time, I was doing that amongst black and Puerto Ricans. Yeah. And when if they're talking shit to me all the years in the street, never not one time did anyone say, you think you're black. Uh, yeah, never. It's always crackers. <laughs> it's always frat boys. And it's always fat fucks who look like they're married to their sister. Right. These are the guys that are obsessed with us. They're, they're obsessed. They got all the shit, black culture in their homes, on the walls, uh, listening to all the music, trying to dance, and do all this shit. These people are obsessed with us, yo. <laughs> Sick animals. <laughs> um, Robbie Anderson, who was a breakout star this year by the New York Jets, was arrested the other night. He, uh, I don't know, he's probably drunk. He, he was arrested. I don't know what exactly was. I think he was drunk. He's probably high. Um, <laughs> he he was belligerent with the cops. At one point, he told the cop, "I'll fuck your wife." <laughs> um, and and a lot of fans were like saying, a lot of Jets fans were saying they should cut Robbie Anderson. Uh, I I disagree. Oh, any any wide receiver that gets arrested by the cops and tells the cop, "I'll fuck your wife," uh, they need to re-sign him ASAP. <laughs> That's the wow. kind of spunk the New York Jets need. That's the kind <laughs> of fire and aggressive attitude the New York Jets need in a wide receiver. Cut uh, Robbie Anderson. No, I didn't think about it like that. Give him You're a right. two-year extension ASAP. Based on that comment. That I'll fuck your wife? He yeah. tells that to the police officer? Uh, yeah. That's the guy I want on my fucking team. <laughs> right. Yeah, I got you. I'm with it. Uh, Mr. Moody, I wanted to throw this at you. This is going back to what we were just talking about earlier, because we're just free-flowing here. Yeah. As I told you at the top of the show, people, later on, uh, since the Oscars were just announced, we have world-renowned film critic Richard Roper, on the I Am Rapport Stereo podcast, talking about all the films this year, 
all the films last year, what films were good, what films weren't good, what films you saw, what films you didn't see but you should see. With my man Richard Roper, who also covered Michael Jordan through all his years. He's a, he's a Chicago film critic. He was under Siskel and Eber. We talk about Siskel and Eber. It's an all-film interview with Richard Roper, but we also talk about him covering Michael Jordan from his early years before he blew up with oh. the Chicago Bulls. But before we get to my man Roper, the Migos, the rap group, they were under fire. And when I say under fire, it's under Twitter. Twitter will go, Twitter will make anybody under fire. They'll be like, uh, um, Migos rapper says queer in his rhyme and people seem not to like it. And then they'll show tweets from like 12 fucking assholes being like, you said queer in your rhyme and blah, 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 blah. And all these, right. and then, and C- Cardi B, who's like the bell of the ball, that's her fiance, this guy offset from the group Migos. Yeah. She came to her husband, her, her fiance's defense and said, you know, you know, you're taking it out of context. You know, he didn't say it the way you think you said it. And then people are like, Cardi, you should know better. Traditionally, yeah. historically, queer is this and queer is that. Well, traditionally and historically, the word bitch is derogatory too. That word. Yeah. Traditionally and historically, the N-word is derogatory too. It's all good when women are calling each other bitch, but when a black man uses the term queer in a song and you take it out of context and you immediately think he's homophobic and he's talking about the LGBT community, it's a problem. So it's a problem if Migos uses the word queer, but it's not a problem with feminists going fuck white feminists and other women saying, hey, bitch, I'm a boss bitch. Situational ethics. Situational (laughs) ethics. These people want to like... You know, they want to dance. They want to use all the hip-hop slang until it says something to them that they don't like. Yeah. You know, you listen to hip-hop, you're not going to hear the same shit that you may hear in your social life with your friends. You listen to hip-hop, it's sexual, it's vulgar, it's violent, it's hip-hop. You don't like it, don't listen to it. Right. Your little protest ain't going to change what's going on in the motherfucking hood. To quote Ice Cube in the classic film, Boys in the Hood. You don't know, you don't show, and you don't care about what's going on in the hood. Unless it's something you deem against you, then you want to go on Twitter. and Twitter is not the end-all, be-all for your little fucking problems. Right. Listen to Cool G Raps talk like sex. Matter of fact, Miles... You cool G raps talk like sex. I do a damn good job. That's why chicks are on my dick like a human shish kebab. Only 19 and over. Permit it. No matter how much young girls want to be with it. You ain't ready for the bed. You still got a pussy like Isaac Cain's head. Come back in five years. When you grow some hairs. And when you start a drink of beers. I'm hitting hookers by the dozen. Making your wetter cause I fuck better than your husband. Giving your girl back spasms. Cause G rap has them orgasm after orgasm. Change the seats, you must be kidding. You gotta change the whole box spring. I ain't bullshitting. You can hear it with hysteria. Cause I'ma bury a big one inside your private area. All hell is in your tush. With cool G rap push pushes inside the bush. Another homegirl flinches. But I got inches for all your little winches. The letter G is better when it comes to letter X. And I'ma talk like sex. This is arguably one of the greatest rappers of all time. 
That music right there is vulgar. You don't like it? You're not about that hip-hop shit. Listen to Wu-Tang. You don't like it? Don't listen to it. Listen to Snoop Dogg. Snoop, you, you love Snoop Dogg. You don't like it? Don't listen to it. Listen to Easy e Too short. Not everything is going to be that nursery rhyme, cocoa butter shit. Hip hop has all lanes. You could you could get it. Chance the rapper is is a lane for you to get into. Uh, just don't listen to the shit you don't like. And queer doesn't mean that. What I heard what he said in the context, queer in the context he he was doing saying, it's like some corny dude. Exactly. Ain't got, and it, it ain't got it's, nothing it's like, to do with his sexuality. It's a corny dude. Words have different meanings to different people. Obviously, bitch, based on the way the women are using it, is now a term of endearment. <laughs> what else you got, Moody? We have a heat wave here in New York. Whoa, uh, like, what's the weather? Uh, 45. And uh, it's good. <laughs> it's fucking good. I got to say. <laughs> 45 degrees is great, huh? Yeah. Compared to five and six, it's a heat wave. All right, well, listen, we're going to get to Richard Roper, okay? I I just want to say this, okay? Richard Roper, film critic extraordinaire, world-renowned, knows every single thing you could possibly know pretty much about every single movie. We're breaking down the movies from this year. The Oscar nominations just came out. Talking about all of it. I want to tell all the Rapper Pack, all the day one listeners of the I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast, me and Moody just went... For 35 motherfucking minutes. Again, I've hurt my throat. <laughs> I've hurt my larynx. I don't want to hear your little fucking two cents on Twitter if you're not listening to all the episodes. Because every episode has that flame, has that fire. See, I am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Coming right up with my man Richard Roper. Stay tuned. All right. I am Rapport Stereo Podcast. I'm excited to talk to this guy, Richard Roper, film critic extraordinaire, just a general writer. I didn't know this. You covered Michael Jordan during his career, during uh, the heyday of the Bulls, when he first got there with the Chicago Sun-Times. And just a film critic, good guy. I met you, actually. Remember we met, um, we were doing the... the uh, that other show, that small show, uh, the Howard Stern wrap-up show. The, the, the gift wrapping show. The gift, gift wrapping show. show. Yes, um, yes. Well, I appreciate you coming on the uh, the podcast, Richard. I'm a fan. I've always respected you. Um, I love your insight in uh, movies and, uh, you know, just everything that you write about. Oh, it's my pleasure to be on, Michael. I listen to the podcast all the time. I, I got to tell you a quick story right off the bat. Because people ask me a lot, Michael, like, okay, you see, you know, 300 movies a year. Do you ever watch movies just for fun? Do you watch TV shows? And here's what I do. Every once in a while, if I want to chill late at night, I call up a movie from before I was officially a film critic, okay? Mm. When, I, when I just was growing up and coming up in the business and loving movies. And it reminds me of my love for movies. And about two weeks ago, I called up, I, you know, I, I downloaded whatever you want to call it these days. I, I summoned from the magical ether. Uh, true romance and mm. watched it all the way through again how great is that movie and how proud of you are you of being a part of that movie i mean it's i'm as proud of it as as the fans love it you know um that's probably the single most uh talked about movie that i've done collectively just because it, it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving you know and it's i think it's the only film that i knew 
while I was making that mm. I was pretty. No, I knew. I'm not saying pretty. Like I knew. I think we all knew it was something special because of the cast, because of the Quentin Tarantino momentum that was building around him, um, mm-hmm. the, the Tony Scott of it all. And, you know, from the biggest stars in it to the Christian Slaters and Val Kilmer and uh, Gary Oldman to James Gandolfini's first film to this brewing, you know, budding megastar, which we, we he wasn't there, but you just knew Brad Pitt was going to be like, you know, super, super big. Um, I would go to the set just to go to the set, just to hang around. Like I was there when uh, the late, great Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken shot that scene uh, in the trailer. Like I just showed up on set. I was there the day that uh, James Gandolfini had the, you know, the fight scene with uh, Patricia Arquette. Um, And it was just a, it was a fun time. I mean, critically, uh, you know, like that, that film, you know, it was, it wasn't a big success. I mean, it got, you know, praise, but it didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't like, you know, the smash it that I thought it, uh, it was, but everybody that has ever seen that movie, you know, loves something about it. And, and, uh, it was a special time. It was a special time for me. I was young. So it, it was fun. You know what I mean? What, what year did you start becoming a, a professional film critic? Oh, well, I'll tell you the story. So I started, you know, I grew up here in the Chicago area. That's where I'm at today as I'm talking to you. So I grew up, you know, reading the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune, which were the newspapers of Cisco and Ebert. You know, I mean, as a kid all the way through high school, you know, I, I always wanted to do something either in radio or writing and, you know, to, to write for my home newspaper. I, I'm from more like the south suburb, south side of Chicago. The Sun-Times is the working class paper. The Tribune was considered the downtown North Shore, you know, uh, more upper crust newspaper. So I never really thought about the Tribune because my dad would bring home the Sun. My dad worked for the Illinois Central Railroad. He'd bring the Sun Times home every day, you know. So when I got hired, almost straight out of school at the Sun Times, and I did the old fashioned thing, Michael. I worked my way up, you know, sorting the mail, working, you know, bringing stuff down to the press room, like the mm. old fashioned printing presses. Eventually, getting my foot in the door as a, a reporter covering crime in Chicago. Oh wow! But I eventually, I eventually made my way over. I always was more interested. I, want, I didn't want to do a whole career. Honestly, man, I don't know how these reporters do it here in Chicago and anywhere else where they can cover the crime and then the hard news day in and day out. You got, I mean, it's just, it would you know, just be so tough for me. I'd go cover a cop's funeral or a firefighter's funeral, and you, you, you know, so you then have to go write a story about it. But it's an experience I'm forever grateful for because it prepares you for everything in life. But I eventually worked my way over to the entertainment side, and of course, you know, Roger Ebert was the film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times starting in 1966 wow. when he got out of University of Illinois. So he was this legend, of course, by the time I started. But he liked my writing, Michael. He always liked when I would write just a column about entertainment or about movies. So every once in a great, great while, if he couldn't get to a movie, he'd say, how about if the kid reviews it? Roper can do this. So that's how I got my foot in the door was actually from Roger. That's cool. Or if he had to go to the, you know, he'd go to the Cannes Film Festival or something like that. So he'd be out of the country for 10 days and they'd say, yeah, but geez, you know, uh, you know, Godzilla's opening or something. Well, let Rope, let Rope write the review. So that's how that started with me actually doing movie reviews kind of under Roger's tutelage and being the guy off the bench when he couldn't do a movie. Got you. That's cool, man. I mean, Roger Ebert and, and you know, film criticism or 
whatever the word is that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, critiquing or, you know, there's such a sort of stigma on it, but, you know, uh, obviously Siskel and Ebert and, and there's a handful of very respected film critics, you know, like sixties and the seventies and the eighties and even into the nineties, um, you know, where it, it was sort of, you know, you listened and the filmmakers were, were interested in to hear from at least a handful of people's opinion. Yeah. You know, Michael, until really until, um, the 60s, and there were some writers like Pauline Kael, who was a great, great film critic. Film criticism was con- wasn't taken seriously. Like, they would actually have, like, the New York Times, they would give, like, a pseudonym to the film critic, uh, Matinee, like, Matinee. Like, uh-huh. and, but then it got, because of the great films of the 60s, when we started getting into, you know, not that the movies in the past weren't great, but, you know, there were a lot of mainstream entertainment. Then all of a sudden we had movies like Bonnie and Clyde, 2001, Easy Rider. It was there was a revolution happening in the film industry, and the film criticism uh, kind of reflected that. And you you, you mentioned, uh, of course, the great Dennis Hopper. I got a story for you involving two of his longtime running mates that Roger told me. So in the early seventies, Siskel and Ebert started doing the TV show, talking right. about movies. Right, started off on local PBS, eventually went nationwide, and on Sunday night in Los Angeles, Jack Nicholson called up Harry Dean Stanton and said. Turn on the TV. There's two guys who look like us talking about movies. That's funny. <laughs> because, you know, if, if you ever had a film critic, it'd be kind of just a polished guy saying, you must go see the latest film from John Wayne. And all of a sudden you had this heavy, heavy guy and this bald guy yelling at each other <laughs> about movies. And, and, you know, even the, even Hollywood said, like, this is great. We've never had anything like this before. And, and Siskel and Ebert sort of was the first debate show. Now you see debate shows obviously all on sports and politics and i mean the internet i mean there's you know there's so many different places where this form but like that was sort of the template for that you know good yep. guy bad guy uh felix and oscar uh yin and yang and the, the whole thumbs up thing you know that you see now tony kornheiser and michael yeah. wilbon and on espn uh siskel and ebert sort of started that correct yeah and you know what i give those guys credit wilbon's a chicago guy himself yep. And they've, they've often said that that's where they got that from, that they got PTI straight out of the Cisco Neighbor playbook. I always dig it when people give credit where credit's due. There's nothing wrong with saying that's where we got that idea. And, you know, the great thing, Michael, for me, I, I was really good friends with Gene Cisco before he passed away. I knew him for a long time. Probably knew him a little bit better than Roger. But then working with Roger for nearly a decade, I got to become like almost the unofficial historian because he would just tell stories. And he, was, he, he wasn't a name dropper. His life was just like that, you right. know. So he told me all these great stories that the first time Cisco and Ebert taped the show, it took them 11 hours because they wouldn't stop arguing. Mm. They just kept going. And then finally, you know, the, the creator of the show, a uh, woman by the name of Thea Flom in Chicago, she's like, you guys, we, we can't do 11 hours. I got, I, I'm, I'm going to be editing this until next month, and it's got to air in a couple of days. But they would just go at it, just like you saw on TV. What you saw was what you got. They were the same exact way off screen. If they were going to go out and get a pizza in Chicago, there was going to be a twenty minute argument about where they should go. That's funny. Um, so, so movies. Your opinion on movies? Where do you think the movie business, in terms of the creativity, the diversity, and I'm not talking about a racially. I'm talking about, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I've talked about this all the time. I can't stand these fucking sci fi movies. I can't. I could give a shit about fucking Superman. Batman and all this stuff. Where do you see, you know, from understanding, you know, film and film of different decades, where do you see the movie business 
in 2018 in terms of the diversity of the kind of movies and the greatness of movies. Because for me, and I want to get into specifics of, you know, this last year, you know, there are some good movies, but, you know, in terms of these groundbreaking movies or these movies like a Goodfellas or a Boogie Nights or, you know, these movies that are going to last the test of time. This year, I don't see any of them. So, you know, not in the specifics. What do you think of the movie business as a whole right now? Yeah, well, that's, you know, you, you made a lot of great points there. And there's a lot to kind of dig into, Michael. Uh, first of all, I agree with you about the superhero movies. Look, they're, you know, they're fantastically done. And if you want to talk about something like the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, right. movies like that, they're beautifully done. I thought the, the first Iron Man was groundbreaking. But yeah, you know, the origin stories now, to me, it's, it's Hollywood as it, at its laziest. How many times are we going to see Peter Parker bitten by a spider in high school, man? I've seen three versions of that in the last decade and a half, Michael. Three major reboots of the Spider-Man franchise. It's the same story. It's lazy, and they put a ton of money into it. They know it's going to make money because internationally, you know, the audience is in China. The audience is in Australia. No matter what, they can relate, or not relate, but they can dig a guy flying through the sky, right? Right. But as far as I'm concerned, when I hear that they're, you know, they're now going to look at how we're going to go back to Thor's parentage, I don't care. Right. And I know when I see these movies, I know they're going to be really well done. And I know half the time the actors are going to be acting against a green screen or sitting there in craft services while the stunt people do the heavy lifting, as opposed to the movies you're talking about. That's one of the theories I have why Liam Neeson and Denzel Washington are the best action heroes of our time, because they actually at least play real characters in real movies, even though they're in their 60s. So even if it's something like the Taken movies, these guys play real characters who, if you mess with them, they can take out a cigarette lighter and a ballpoint pen and take your head off. Right. In the meantime, the younger actors are all spending all day at the gym. I don't know why superheroes need perfect pecs, but they have to have it. So they could, But all the younger actors, and some of them are really good, they're too busy putting on capes and tights. Right. And, you know, you can't tell me. Chris Evans did a movie last year. Chris Evans is Mr. Who's a Captain America, right? And he did a little movie last year called Gifted, where yep. he plays the you know, working-class uncle of a girl who happens to be off-the-charts genius. And that was a better piece of acting in the first five minutes than he's had to do as Captain America in ten films. And he'll, he, he might not say that on a talk show circuit, but I guarantee you he dug doing Gifted a lot more than he dug you know, playing Captain America. And I certainly enjoyed watching Gifted more than Captain America. Now, you know, as far as where the movies are, that's what we're going to get. Almost every weekend you're going to get one or two big mainstream movies – and then what I think makes my job more important as a movie critic than ever before is I go through all the movies that are coming out on demand, that are coming out in limited release, and there's about a dozen a week. And I try to find one or two really good films. And then the other thing, of course, as you very well know, some of the best movie making is being done on television. Just because it's on Netflix or Amazon, you know, every single episode of Game of Thrones is a movie. It's yeah. a movie. It's an hour and ten minute film. So, you know, that's where you're seeing... Obviously, going back to, to Sopranos, speaking of James Gandolfini, but really, I think, kicking off with the Breaking Bads of the world, where right now there's probably 15 or 20 TV series that every single episode is better than 90% of the movies out there. So you'd say that you get 10 to 12 movies a week throughout the year? Every single week. My, my editor at the Sun-Times in Chicago, I still write for the Sun-Times in addition to doing you know TV and radio and all that stuff. Every single week, we, we're, we're obviously we're working a couple of weeks in advance. So like this week, he'll say, all right, 
here are the movies for January 26th coming out that Friday. Wow. And we'll know, we'll know the big movies. And then he'll, and he, you know, we hear obviously studios, publicists, we look for stuff and then he'll send me a description such and such. And a lot of times, as you know, too, it'll, it, it's not some unknown cast, you know, right. it's big name act and it'll be, you know, a heist movie set in P- Pittsburgh in the early seventies starring blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, the, the Saturday Night Live uh, writing team of blah, 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 do a romantic comedy. You know, and these are all movies that are obviously made for less money. But I then, and that's part of the job people don't get, and I don't care because people say, oh, you just watch movies all day. I then have to sift through those because the only way to decide if you're going to review them or not is to watch them, right? I mean, I'm going to watch a Nicolas Cage movie tonight. Um, and you know, my, my philosophy is if I see a couple of small movies, if I don't like something, why am I going to bring it up just so I can dump on it? You know, I'm going to more likely try to champion the small film that I hope people check out on demand or, you know, however they get their movies these days. Because like I said, a lot of them, they might not be playing if you're not in Chicago, New York, or Los Angeles at a theater, but they are available on your queue. If you call up your on-demand queue or if you look at your iTunes selections or Amazon or whatever the case may be. So if you spend the time to watch a movie, like I think that's nice and compassionate because, you know, people don't understand how hard it is to, to actually make a movie, you know, to raise the money, whether it's a million dollars, $5,000, $3 million. Mm-hmm. But if you watch one of these smaller movies and it's trash and essentially not worth reviewing, you'll just watch it to yourself and you won't mention, even though you spent the time watching it? I usually won't. And, you know, part of that's just, you know, how much space is available online or on a website or certainly in a printed newspaper. But it's for the exact reasons you say. It's like, why am I going to say, hey, you guys, you know, I've got, I consider a mainstream audience. So I'm not going to say, hey, you guys, here's a movie you never heard of made by a filmmaker who spent six years of her life you know, maxing out her credit cards and borrowing money, and, and they finally got the movie made, and it's a piece of crap. What, what's the point of that? And, you know, the other thing that you mentioned, too, I do, and I hear from a lot of people off the record after I review movies, and, you know, sometimes, yeah, I hear from, I'm a human being. I, I feel bad when a director or an actor reaches out to me and says, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I've always liked your work, and you dumped down my movie. And I always, I, I always tell them, Michael, though, you know, my primary responsibility is to the movie goer. I'm reviewing the movies right. primarily for the guy or the woman that's out there busting their asses all week. Now they're going to go to the theater. It's going to cost them 12 bucks, maybe, maybe more just to get in the door, let alone snacks and babysitter and all that. But that being said, I'm very careful not to just single out, especially, and you know how this business works. I'm very careful about singling out the screenwriter of a film unless I love the script. Because a lot of times, if you say the screenplay sucks, well, the person whose name is on that screenplay might have got rewritten 12 times. You know? Right. Might have gotten right. their script screwed. So I've heard from some screenwriters whose names are on the movies who have said to me, I'm glad you hated that movie because I hated what they did with my screenplay. So I try not to, you know, if, some, if, if the makeup is great, I'll say, the, I'll say the makeup artist's name. If the makeup looks bad... I'll just say the makeup looks bad, but I'm not going to say what the name, because who knows if the lighting screwed it up or something else. So I got you. I, I try to be really respectful of everybody involved in the process. How many movies can you honestly watch without like checking out? Especially because I know for me, me personally, my attention, since I've gotten addicted to my phone and it's fucking pathetic, yeah. my attention is down the, down the tubes. So like how many movies can you, let's say you get, 
10 movies in the week mm-hmm. and you go through all of them and and i mean like you know six of them are good four of them are like are you able to still you know maintain your attention and your focus on the film and when you're reviewing a film like do you have notes like how do you what's your process of watching a film that you know cuz even if you're not going to review it when you're watching it you're you're monitoring if you're going to review it like what's your film viewing process for work stuff not like rescreening sure. true romance sure okay well i'll i'll go back to the beginning on that first of all yeah i you know one of the reasons i don't go to a lot of film festivals and i used to go to things like sundance in toronto is because and you'll see all the and look some of the people are covering it most of the people there are not film critics they're covering it either as entertainment writers or they're covering the business and I get all that. But for a film critic to start your day watching a movie at 8 a.m. and to be slogging through Sundance through one, you know, through the show and all that crap, and, and sometimes not in the greatest theaters in these, these film festivals. You know, they, they'll set up mm-hmm. a, a screening room in, a, in the Park City Library or whatever. Well, by the time you get to 8 o'clock at night and you're watching your sixth movie and you're wiped out and you haven't had anything to eat, and all, you're not giving that movie a fair shake. So my feeling is about three spread out across the day, see something at 10 a.m., see something maybe at 2 p.m., maybe 7, maybe a fourth movie at night. Now, in Chicago, there's, you know, there's obviously commercial theaters where I see movies. There's a private screening room that dates all the way back to the Cisco and Ebert days. It's literally within walking distance of my place. It's just on the you know, 17th floor of a nondescript building, and there's, you know, it's, a, it's a private screening room, so it's great because I can schedule screenings there. I don't have to sit through all the trailers and commercials. That helps. So that's my feeling is like, I, you know, I've had a few times with some of these smaller films, honestly, I, if I start watching them at midnight, sometimes at 1am, I'll be like, you know what, I got to watch this tomorrow. I'm not, I'm not paying enough attention to this. I'm not, right. I'm not on my game. And that again, you know, that's to me, that's just blasphemy to the people that, you know, put their, their heart and soul into the movie. Uh, as far as the process, I don't take a lot of notes because I see this with a lot of young critics. They come in with these giant notepads, man. And their script, five minutes into the movie, they're writing a novel. And I'm like, what are you writing? But while they're writing, Michael, they're missing the movie. They're looking right. down at the notebooks. And I, Roger Ebert had the tiny little notebook. He, he always kept it in his front pocket. You do want to write down a quick thought or if you notice that was something was a line that was brilliant, you know. But in this day and age, the great thing is if you've got a question about almost anything, there's either a clip you can look up. There's a publicist who will help you out. There's IMDb. So you really, you know, if I see a, an actor in a movie that I don't know who it is and they're fantastic, well, I don't need to know their name while I'm watching the movie. Most of the times I'm going to know, but I can look it up after. So I try to keep the note taking to a minimum because I want to watch the movie the way the viewer's going to watch the movie. And for that same reason, I won't go back and watch a movie twice before I review it. I'll watch it twice if I love it or if I want to write about it for an Oscar piece. But because my feeling is the same way with the exception of maybe, you know, the Star Wars maniacs or something, most people see a movie once. I want to give them the same experience that they're going to have. Here's what I saw. I got you. And if it's, and you know what? If I get lost by the murder mystery, I'll just say in my review, they lost me. Now, maybe that's because I didn't do a good job of paying attention, but maybe it's because it's a little convoluted and, 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 and muddy. You know? And I'll just say that. They lost me. I didn't know what was going on at one point. Or, even worse, I didn't care what was going on at some point. Right. 2017, last year. Mm-hmm. What movies that most people didn't see excited you? Like so so what are the sort of under the radar movies? Cuz one movie that I wanted to ask you about is uh that a lot of people didn't see and it's it's not an easy movie but it's really bugged out 
and it, it really made me think, and I was just impressed with the filmmaking, and I had a lot of questions, and at first I was like, I don't know if I love this movie, but the fact that I'm still thinking about it, uh, I, I think it is a really good movie. Uh, this movie, The Killing of a Sacred Deer with Nicole Kidman and... Um, Colin Farrell. Yes. Like, that to me, and, and then this, this kid that's in it who was in Dunkirk... He's not being brought up for best uh, supporting actor, but in my opinion, his performance in this really wacky, weird uh, killing of a sacred deer should totally be brought up for some sort of, I don't know, independent film, uh, independent spirit award or something. So that was the movie to me that stuck out like under the radar. I wanted to know, did you watch that movie? And is there other movies that you can tell me about? Because I didn't have a great film watching year. Yeah, first of all, I agree with you about The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I completely understand how people could go see that movie and walk out 20 minutes into it. What I loved about it, though, is like what you said. First of all, it's a really original and bizarre and strange and unique piece of work, which is what I think is part of what makes it almost great, is because you don't see that movie, and you're never going to see anything quite like it again. And I love how everybody in the movie, the characters... You know, they, they're all buying into it. You know what I mean, Michael? Like, you know, nobody in that movie is going like, this is weird, man. That's up to the audience to decide. So they're all living that reality of that movie, which is, I don't, we don't want to give it too much away, but is really bizarre and twisted and sick and violent and sometimes darkly funny, but mm-hmm. also talks, you know, obviously speaks to issues that people can relate to. But I, I thought it was brilliantly done. Certainly something uh, people should check out. Um, in that same vein, not the same kind of movie, but a movie, I think, that goes back to something like, you know, could have been made in the 70s or 80s, uh, Wind River. And that was, uh, that Wind River's the one with Jeremy Renner, who's the park ranger, you know, in, yep. the, in the nowhere territory. And Elizabeth Olsen is the young FBI agent. And they're, they're investigating the murder of a young 15-year-old girl on this Indian Reservation. It's got a lot of you know interesting stuff about the dynamic between the Caucasians and the Indians without hitting you over the head. But okay. I also like that one, Michael, because the dynamic between Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen kind of reminded me of Scott Glenn and Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. One's the veteran who's been mm-hmm. around and seen it all, but the other one's probably the sharper, you know, rising star. But they, they have this great kind of relationship that's not the cheap romantic relationship that a lot of movies would make it. It's more big brotherly, but they're learning from each other. And there's a couple of moments in that film that are just absolutely heartbreaking. And it's also just brilliantly done, you know, just beautifully shot, beautifully acted. And movies like Wind River, Killing of a Sacred Deer, I'm sure you've heard of, you know, it's now getting a lot of momentum, uh, Three Billboards outside Ebbing, yep. Missouri. Which got, I was glad to see. I'm not, you know, the Golden Globe is a whole other topic, but I was so glad to see it get recognized because that's another one, Michael. You know, five minutes into that movie, as a critic, I was like leaning forward in my seat because I just knew I was seeing greatness. You could just tell by yeah. the, the, the framing of the shots, the music, the attention to detail. And then, have you had a chance to see it yet? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I yeah, loved it. I, I didn't see Wind River, but Three Billboards, I, I loved. I figured you would because it, you're, you know, you're an actor that, that's had a chance to do lots of different roles, and I'm sure you really appreciated that, like, the Sam Rockwell character or the Woody Harrelson character or just about any other, especially the supporting characters. In movies like that, you usually get to know them, and then that's who they are. And without getting, giving anything away, I loved how we got to know more about each of these characters and really got to understand where they were coming from and that they weren't just one-dimensional. You don't get that much in a mainstream movie that, like that anymore. Everything's always about the you know, lead character 
and maybe one other lead character, and all the supporting characters just exist to comment or to react to the lead characters. In three billboards, we got to see their actual lives. That, to me, is an exciting thing to see on the screen. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that movie was great. Um, I need to see this Wind R- River, to be honest. I didn't even hear about it. You know, yeah. it, like I said, I didn't have a great uh, movie going uh, 2017. Uh, some of that's my fault and whatever. But, you know, I'm such a fan of, of of the movies. And, you know, I get discouraged, like I said, because there's so many of these big movies. And, you know, and then these smaller movies, if you don't catch them like a week, even the really good ones, or two weeks after they, they're released, they're gone and then, you know, they come on TV and, and then it's a different experience and whatever. I got my Real Housewives and, uh, and all my other crap. <laughs> but, you know, the good thing is, at least in this day, like back in the day, like when I was growing up watching movies, you know, I, you know, I grew up in, as a kid in the 60s and 70s. And back then, you know, if a movie didn't do well, if it didn't, you know, played in the theater, it disappears forever. It didn't even show up on the late night show. Because the late night show, you know, on WGN here in Chicago, Channel 9, you got to see the Bogart movies, which was awesome. But they didn't show, like, a second-tier movie that didn't do well. And then VCR came out. You know, the, the, the most exciting thing to me, when I was, like, 17, and I saw this $2,000 Betamax machine at Sears Roebuck, and I found out that they were going to have movies that you could get on tape. The first time I walked into, not even a blockbuster, but, like, a local rental shop, and you could actually get movies, you know, and watch them. At least nowadays... We do have all the, you know, multi-platform so that a movie then appears on video on demand, then it's on HBO or Showtime, and eventually, you know, at least it can play on TBS or TNT or whatever, or you could just, like I said, call up a movie. I want to see True Romance. I go down on my on-demand, I type in those, those words, and it says, movie will now play. That's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, so, so at least these movies will, will get a chance, but... I agree with you. They, they disappear. I'll give you another example of a movie that nobody saw. It came out almost a full year ago, and I thought it was great. It was called The Founder. And this is the one where Michael Keaton plays Ray Kroc, the guy oh, yes. who's credited with founding McDonald's, but in reality, basically completely trumped the McDonald's brothers. There were two brothers yep. called the McDonald's brothers. You know this, right? The original yep. franchise was out in California. Uh, Ray Kroc is from here, from my area, from the Chicago area. He was a traveling salesman, and the, you know the McDonald's brothers essentially invented fast food. He you know figured out a way to you know get them to sign paperwork, and then you know the rest is history. But Michael Keaton, one of our best actors, he's brilliant because you see him, you see the charm in Ray Kroc, and you see the business acumen, but you also see what an sob he is because he just he completely shoves them aside. And by the time you cut to the 70s, when Ray Kroc was buying the San Diego Padres, he's listed everywhere as the guy who founded McDonald's, which was named after the McDonald's brothers, who were completely, literally erased from history. But it's a great film. Great film. Yeah, that's a good movie. I saw that. I saw that either on iTunes or, or, or Netflix or one of them. But, I did, you know, it came and went. And, um, you know, I know people had been talking about trying to get Michael Keating another Oscar nomination, but it didn't happen. We're in such a golden era of documentaries, again, with Netflix, HBO. Um, were there any documentaries in 2017? Like, or what were the documentaries, whether they came out on Netflix or HBO or, or in the theater first? Or even some of these films, that they'll be in film festivals or you'll get them as screeners. 
that stuck out to you? Like, what were the yeah. best documentaries of 2018? So, you know, I'll be honest with you. That's actually something I'm working my way through right now. Uh, I didn't think it was the biggest year for documentaries. So there weren't, I mean, there were some that I wrote about, but not as many as I usually would have. Because, again, when I'm looking at my audience, they've got to be fairly mainstream, something I might want to watch personally. So I'm kind of working through some of them. Uh, there's actually one right now on HBO. It's about um, the guy who ran Fiat back in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, they called him the Avocado, which is like Italian for lawyer. A real-life guy, but if they don't make a real-life movie, uh, a fictional movie about him, Mike, I mean, because this guy was the playboy of all time, and then he was the champion of Fiat. But he was the kind of guy, like, he, when he would go visit people on the beach, like at the Riviera, he'd have his helicopter whiz up, and he'd jump out of the helicopter into the water. Then he'd swim to the shore. And then you know, the, the rumor, the biggest rumor about him, he womanized everybody. He was with everybody. But the biggest rumor was that he had an affair with Jackie Kennedy after John F. Kennedy was elected president. Because she actually oh, went, wow. she went to visit him. His name was like, you know, Gianni Angeli. And she went to visit him with her little kids in Italy. And JFK famously sent her a telegram saying, more time with Caroline, less time with Gianni. So check this HBO documentary about this guy out. Uh, as far as like fun documentaries, as you know, even though I'm a, more of a White Sox than Cubs fan, there was a great uh, documentary about Pearl Jam, uh, and Eddie Vedder is a huge Chicago Cubs fan. And it's about the 2016 season, right in the middle of the pennant run that the Cubs were making toward the end of the 2016 season. Uh, Pearl Jam played two concerts at Wrigley Field, like in between games, like, you know, in between home sets and had, you know, the camera people have full access to it. So it's really cool. So you get to see the Cubs marching to the world championship and Eddie Vedder showing home movies as a kid when he was a Cubs fan. Now he's basically at home plate singing to 55,000 fans in Wrigleyville. What's the name of that film? Oh God, I'm not sure if it's just, look, if you just look at Pearl Jam and Cubs, you'll see it. It's, it's really, really cool. Okay, I got to check those out. Um, all right, so what are the best films of the year? Or, or, or forget what are the best films of the year. What are the films that are going to be nominated? Um, 2000, like coming up in these Oscars, these SAG Awards, these Golden Globe Awards, which, I mean, I, I'm so exhausted with this fucking Golden Globes thing um, for all the reasons. It's just like the whole thing, and, and the protest was great, but... The movie, yeah. I just the, the the scrutiny of who's protesting, who's not protesting, the whole thing got out of hand. So yeah, and who, now who, and now and I agree, I completely agree with you. And I, you know, I, I, all the respect in the world to the women who have stepped forward. I think at this point that should go without saying, but maybe not. But I, you know, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. But now you get to the point too where anytime any man goes up there, someone can just tweet anything about them, and everybody immediately assumes it to be true. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. And also, yes, the Golden Globes is the one award show that's usually the most entertaining. I missed seeing all the upside-down bottles of champagne. I missed Right, seeing- they're usually drinking and hanging yeah. out. Because, you know, at the end of the day, let's face it, all of these things are ridiculous. It's a bunch of grown-ass millionaires handing trophies to one another. And, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been to the Oscars maybe ten times, and it's exciting, and I get all that. But, you know, I always would crack up, too, like when someone would go up there who won, and they would just be so shocked. And they couldn't believe it. And I'm like, well, out of the six billion people on the planet Earth, you were one of the five who were nominated. You can't be that shocked. Mm-hmm. You, knew you, you know what I mean? It gets, it gets a, I don't want to say a little self-indulgent. It gets hugely self-indulgent. But like everybody else, you know, I watch all this stuff. I watch the Globes. As far as the Oscars, as you said, best movies of the year and pictures getting nominated, not always the same thing. But I do think three billboards – 
outside Epping, Missouri, is the front runner for best drama. Uh, the Post, Steven Spielberg's movie about the Washington Post, is a great film. Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep. And it's one of those films where you're kind of reminded of why those two actors became the icons they are, because they're so good. Mm -hmm. So good in this, Michael. And then, you know, I will say this, too. I know there's a lot of people loved Lady, Beard, Lady Bird, which is Greta yep. Gerwig's film, which I loved, I loved myself. I gave it four stars. But I, <laughs> I say this again, thinking, you know, saying that she's, I think, going to be an amazing filmmaker and already great effort as a writer-director. But it's a nice small, smart, character-driven film. and it's Like, it maybe would have won Sundance one year, maybe. Right. I agree. And like, it's a small movie. But to make this big thing over it, I'm like, is it is it because there's not that many great movies? Or, or I, what's the deal? Because I, yeah. I, and I, I'm not insulting it at all. It's a good little movie. Right. And, and you know, Tracy Letts and Laurie Metcalf, who play her parents, and, you know, those are both Chicago. Those are Steppenwolf theater people here. I love them. I think Tracy Letts... Yep. Is about is one of the greatest actors on the planet, and he's in the post. He's in everything in movies now. But this guy also has won a Pulitzer Prize for like the you know Osage County. He wrote the. I mean, you, you're talking about a, a true genius, right? And mm -hmm. I love to see it. But but yes, it's a it's a small film, and I almost feel it's like unfair to the movie because now the second tier of fans who are going to see it are like, oh, so it's about this quirky high school girl who's on her way to college, and her parents are having difficulties, and she's, you know, kind of coming into her own, and that's it. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. So to me, as a film critic who's seen 6,000 movies, you can't tell me that that's a better movie than Three Billboards or Wind River or, or a more lasting film or a more accomplished piece of filmmaking. And I know this is all subjective, but just no effing way. And I kind of feel the same way about Get Out, and I loved Get Out, and I saw that movie... Michael, mm -hmm. I, I was lucky enough to see it before any of the hype. I didn't even know what I was seeing. I mean, I knew the people that were involved in it, you know, and I knew that they were talented people, but I didn't even know it was a horror movie. I knew it was going to be some sort of quirky film. So to see this thing go sideways and really, you know, go from this kind of Stepford Wives racial satire into something even darker and stranger and really cool, and I loved it. But to kind of, it's the same thing with that. You know, it's getting so much, it's gotten so much hype that I've had a lot of people are seeing like, okay, yeah, that was really funny and really weird, but they expected to see The Shining meets The Exorcist, right. Rosemary's Baby. I don't think right. it's, you know, I think we've got to keep these things in, in context. I think it'd be great if Lady Bird or Get Out gets nominated for Best Picture, but to me, if, if Lady Bird wins Best Picture, it's going to be like one of those where we look back and go, okay, Shakespeare in Love beat out Saving Private Ryan. Really? Right. Or Ordinary right. People beat out Raging Bull? Really? Which is one of my biggest gripes in film history ever. Because Raging Bull, to me, is the greatest movie ever made. And, and I'm talking like if you go category for category, yeah. performance, yeah. director, editing, sound, sound editing, cinematography, um, influence. Like to me, I, it, listen, Raging Bull, I love it. It's not a feel-good movie. But when you look at that movie collectively, like of all the categories... I think it's the greatest movie ever, and and it doesn't mean it has to be a fun ride. Right. But but you know the fact that it lost to ordinary people, and I had a conversation. Uh, the first time I ever got drunk in my life was on the set of Beautiful Girls, uh, with the late great Ted Demi, Matt Dillon, mm. and Timothy Hutton, all good guys. And Timothy mm. Hutton had a great sense of humor, but they were drinking whiskey. This was literally the first time I drank in my entire life. I was like twenty five or something like that. I had never drank. 
I got like barely drunk and I just went off on Timothy Hutt and I was like, can you fucking believe that movie beat Raging Bull? You should be ashamed of yourself. And you, cause he won the Oscar. He beat Joe Pesci. How could you live with yourself? Did you beat Joe Pesci? And you know, he got a good kick out of it cause you know, he knew I was drunk, but you know, to this day, you know, these awards are, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, people say they don't matter, but they do matter. You know, when when they gave Scorsese the Oscar, uh, you know, when they didn't give it to him for Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, and all the other films, they gave Pacino the Oscar when they didn't give it to him for all his earlier work. So, right. you know, I mean, I think it's a lot of times it's it's politics, don't you think? In, in terms of sometimes when they give these awards out. Oh, it absolutely is. And you mentioned some great example. I mean, Al Pacino wins for scent, scent of a woman, but not, you know, uh, Michael Corleone. You know, Michael Corleone, I would argue, is maybe the, the most fascinating movie character of all time. If you look at his, uh, art, you know, years ago, Premier Magazine did a thing on the 100 most, uh, you know, the whole 100 greatest movie characters of all time. And they had Don Corleone as number one. And I took, I, I had a big, you know, argument with him about that because I'm like, no, Michael Corleone's the most fascinating movie character of all time. Don Corleone, it's an amazing performance, but it's it, it's in two thirds of the first movie, and we see him. We only get to learn more about him in the second movie when De Niro's playing. Him. Right. Al right. Pacino plays Michael Corleone from a war hero who's not going to get involved in the family business to a guy who's so much colder than his father ever was. You know, it, it's an amazing, amazing piece of work, and that. But he didn't win for that, and he didn't win for Panic in Needle Park or Serpico. He won for Scent of a Woman, and and Paul Newman didn't win, uh, you know, for for HUD or for Cool Hand Luke or for any of those great portrayals. He wins for a good film, a very good film, Color Money. So that's one thing. There's career Oscars. As far as these best picture things go, you know, you're right. Raging Bulls routinely listed among the top five or ten films of all time, but it still should have won the Oscar. And you know what? One of my favorite movies, and I think favorite and greatest can be different. One of my favorite movies of all time is Rocky. But I think even Stallone will tell you the Taxi Driver should have won Best Picture that year. Mm. You know, and it, you know, in in the late sixties, we you know, two thousand and one lost to Oliver, an old fashioned movie musical. Come on. So same thing this year. If Lady Bird wins Best Picture, it's a combination of things. And and again, all great respect to Greta Gerwig, but it's going to be some of the voters saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool, written and directed by a woman? Hey, isn't it great? This is the most acclaimed film, the Rotten Tomatoes, perfect score. Wouldn't it be cool to, to recognize all... And you know what? People can vote for however they want to vote, but you're never going to convince me that Lady Bird is a better film than Three Billboards or Dunkirk or Wind River or The Post... Or even something like Detroit, which is Catherine Bigelow's film set yep. in, the, in 1967, Detroit, which is another one that got overlooked, which is a great film that people should check out. What filmmakers today are you the most excited to go see their movies? Like, you're like, I can't wait to get the screener. I can't wait to go to the private screen. Like, mm. what three or four filmmakers are you like, I'm clearing my day. I'm bringing my own popcorn. I'm getting the licorice. I want the goddamn <laughs> theater perfect. You know, you want the sound perfect. Like, what? who are your guys now that, like, yeah. most excite you? Well, you know, it's still mostly uh, the veterans because of the reasons we talked about earlier, how these other films, and look, there's been some great work done on, on some of the superhero movies, and, and all great respect, Patty Jenkins kicked ass with Wonder Woman. She's a great director. But most of the superhero movies, let's face it, there are probably 100 directors in Hollywood if they could handle the budget and the stars, they could do it. But, you know, I, so I still look for the names we've been looking at for the last 40 years, you know. If I see it's a Spielberg film or a Ridley Scott film or, you know what, here's an amazing thing. 
Clint Eastwood is almost mm-hmm. 90. And Clint Eastwood's got a movie coming out next month about the, the three off-duty American soldiers who thwarted a, a, a terrorist attack on the train from Amsterdam mm-hmm. to Paris. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood, if you look at his, the films he's made in the last 15 years, if you look at movies like, well, starting off with Million Dollar Baby, but if you look at things like Sully, he's made more good movies after the age of 70 than most young filmmakers ever make. So I still look for guys like that. There are some young filmmakers. We met, I mentioned to you Wind River, Michael. So this guy, Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Wind River and also directed it. This guy is an actor, too. He was on Sons of Anarchy for a while. Oh, right. I right. heard about this movie. I and, heard about this. So, so here's Taylor Sheridan. Here are the three movies he's written in the last three years. Sicario, Hell or mm. High Water, and Wind River. That's about as good as a three-film start for a writer as you can find in modern times. Sicario, mm-hmm. Hell or High Water, Wind River. So I look at whatever that guy is going to do next, count me in. What did you think of the Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Oh, uh, the, the Phantom Threat. Yeah, well, he, well, yes. well, first of all, there's another guy who, you know, when you see his name on a film, whether it's, you know, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, you know, going back 20-some years now. And Phantom Thread, you know, it's one of those films that, you know, if it's not Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis, I, I can't imagine being less interested in the, the basic subject matter. It's set in the 1950s in London, and it's about a dressmaker. You know, are you kidding me? But because right. it's Paul Thomas Anderson and because the dressmaker, the fashion designer, is Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm in, going in, right? And then you see it, and it's brilliantly done because every single detail of it. Daniel Day-Lewis is probably playing the closest to what Daniel Day-Lewis is really like because the guy he plays, who's this world-famous guy who makes dresses for the richest people in the world, so he's got a huge house and he's got a huge staff, but the guy he plays is this meticulous perfectionist who does everything the same way every single day and has... You know, intimate, every single intricate detail of his life must be done, the way he dresses, the way he shaves. And if people get in the way of his process, he's almost like staying in character, just like we hear Daniel Day-Lewis always stays in character. Mm-hmm. So just watching that, watching the way, you know, he, you know and, and just the slightest thing, like when he has his breakfast in the morning and the woman he had just kind of started off with stays overnight, and just the way she scrapes the toast with a noise that irritates him and just watching him react to that. It's like a masterclass in acting. So it's great. It's great. Even though, and it's another one where in a way there's a little bit of a sacred of a killing deer kind of element. I'll just say that where all of right. a sudden something really strange happens and you're like, okay, I'll go with that. And I love that. What actors are you most excited to see like sight unseen? Like for me, Denzel Washington has made more movies that could have been average mm-hmm. or almost like B movies great. Like he 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 single-handedly can take something that's good and and take it to levels that I don't think anyone else could do. Um yeah, like even Training I, Day. Yeah, any yeah. other any other actor in that part, you're not getting Academy Award nomination. You're not going to win yeah. the Academy Award. Like True. who knows what it could be. Yeah, he's boy. That's I, it's hard to quibble. That may be the number one. Where you're right. If you just like, you know, you can put him in anything. There's other great actors, but in certain roles, they just kind of disappear into the movie. But uh, you know, I love. Uh, yeah, I'll watch Denzel. And I, you know, it, it sounds weird to say Tom Hanks is underrated. I don't want to say underrated, but I will say taken for granted because the guy, you know, like like in the Post, he's playing Ben Bradley. Jason Robards played Ben Bradley, the Washington Post editor, in All the President's Men. 
And he won the right. Academy Award for supporting actor. Because Ben Bradley was a guy who not only was a great editor, but he was like a Navy guy, you know, big guy, roll up the sleeves, leading man, handsome. You think of a Jason Robards or like a John Wayne playing him. So you think Tom Hanks, well, you know, Tom Hanks is more of the regular guy, you know, but he right. nails it. He gets that kind of dashing rogue, you know, egomaniac, but still brilliant journalist thing. And you watch it and you go, same thing with Tom Hanks. You know, there was a terrible movie called The Circle that came out this year, earlier this year, where he plays kind of a Bill Gates type of guy. More like Steve, uh-huh. Jobs, more like Steve Jobs, actually, Michael, because he even wears like kind of the black turtleneck. And it's all about how, you know, it's one of those movies where it's like, this would have been really cutting edge if it had been made in 1997. Because it's all about how, because of the internet, if you get in the circle instead of the cloud, they can tell what you're doing. And I'm like, yes, yeah, Andrew Bullock did that with the net in 1995, you know? Right. But... Tom Hanks is still great in it. He makes you stay, right. you stay with it because it's Tom Hanks. And, you know, as far as actresses go, my, I think my, my favorite of the last maybe 10 years is Jessica Chastain because she could do mm-hmm. everything. She could be the glamorous leading lady, but she can play all. And she's in this movie called Molly's Game that just came out, mm-hmm. you know, which is based on the true story of the high stakes poker games that involved a lot of Hollywood stars. And she's great in it, you know? Cause yeah, she, she you know, is. And, and I, she's another one where it's like sometimes the movies are, are great, sometimes they're not. But if I see that she's in it, I know it's not. I know she's never going to give an uninteresting performance. She wouldn't know how. Yeah, she's good, and she keeps getting better and better. Um, all right, so you covered early Michael Jordan in Chicago before he was even a champion. Yes. What do you remember about uh, covering Michael Jordan for the Chicago Sun-Times? Uh, what was he like? Because, you know, when you're got, you know, microphones in front of him, um, you know, and then there's mm-hmm. cameras are on and cameras and all, are off. What do you remember about covering Michael Jordan? You know what I, what I remember? I mean, I, I go all the way back to when he had hair. He actually had hair when he came here. That's and, you know, crazy. People might not remember this, but he was actually the third pick in the draft that year because uh, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde, Clyde Drexler went ahead of him. Uh, everybody knew he was great, but but he knew how great he was before we all did. He already knew it, you know, and he joined a team that was terrible. You know, a bunch of cast-offs, guys who were party animals at the end of their career, you know, unknowns, uh, undisciplined team. And this was a guy who, from the moment he came to the Bulls, and, you know, I think it was about seven years, Michael, before they really got great. I mean, he had a long run there where he was just averaging 30 points and they would not even make the playoffs or they'd get knocked out in the field or they'd get the crap beat out of him by the Pistons who treated him like little boys, you know, Lambeer and all those guys. But Jordan, you know, you'd hear these reports and they wouldn't deny him. He'd get into fights and practice with guys. He'd punch, you know, he punched Steve Kerr, who's they're, they're good friends now. He punched Steve Kerr in the nose. You know, he, were you he, were you were you covering the team then? I wasn't covering him as a beat reporter day in and day out, you know. So I wasn't there every day, but um, I was there for a lot of the stuff. And but just to see the development, and then of course, you know, when they got when they got you know, the first rock star team in Chicago in the early '90s, you know, when he, when they put together that supporting cast, and Scottie Pippen's another guy. You know, he was a high first round pick, but he was this unpolished kid who played on dirt floors in Arkansas. I mean, you want to talk about the most unsophisticated, and he's a great guy. I'm friends with him to this day. But the greatest thing that ever could happen to Scottie Pippen was that he was always the number two because he never could have been the guy, as he showed when Michael took two years off to play baseball, nor did he want to be the guy to lead the charge. But the mm-hmm. best, one of the best number twos ever. You know, it's like a rock band where some guys just want to be number twos. And he, you know, he turned Pippen, helped turn Pippen, 
into one of the greatest defensive players. And that was the other great thing about Jordan. You know, he always would say, because, you know, when he came up, he couldn't hit anything from outside. He was a terrible shooter. He, right. he, he made himself a great shooter. But what he would always say is, you, you, don't have, you can have an off-shooting night. You don't ever have to have an off-defensive night because it's all about effort. And he instilled right. that, you know, to sort of see that. You know, the, the, <laughs> the off-court, you know, the off-record Jordan, I, you know, I'll say and a lot of this is kind of known now. He's very lucky he came up in an era just before all the madness that we have now. <laughs> with, with all with, the cell with, with phones Twitter. and you can't yeah. move around and, the, yeah. and everybody's he, monitoring you, right? He was able to live, you know, he lived the life he lived kind of unapologetically. So, you know, we'd be out and about. He'd be out with, uh, you know, he used to love to run around with Richard Dent, who was on the 1985 Bears Super Bowl oh, team. They're, they're big buddies to this day. So, you know, he'd have Richard with him. Uh, he had a guy named George who... who, who became his like trusted driver because George picked him up at the airport. First time he came to O'Hare, there was nobody from the Bulls waiting for him. So this guy walked up and said, you need a ride. And Jordan hired him for 25 years after that. So it'd be Michael, George the limo driver, Richard Bent, maybe one or two other guys, but he could walk into a place. He could hang out. You know, uh. you, could, you could talk to him. Although, you know, that's not going to happen in this day and age. So he really got to enjoy life. I'll tell you a quick story if you got time for it about, yep. <laughs> about, about Michael. So in Chicago, you've probably seen in some of the movies, you know, they play the 16-inch softball here more than the 12-inch. You know, that's the, that's the big ball where you don't wear gloves. 16-inch softball right. is pretty much invented here. So I was in this uh, celebrity charity game here in Chicago. You know, athletes and media, all that kind of stuff. And Michael was going to play. So I got a call from somebody in his camp saying, hey, you know, Michael knows you, you played a lot of baseball. He's never played softball in his life. Will you meet him at the park like five hours before the game? Because he wants to learn a little bit. And, he, we, and, of course, as we later learned, he loved baseball, but he's never played softball. Mm. So, so I drive out to this little ballpark in the north side of Chicago. He comes roaring up in his Corvette with his Air 23 license plate. It's not exactly undercover, but, you know, people not paying attention. He gets out of the car. He's got jeans and gym shoes on. I'm like, you got sweatpants? He's like, oh. Should I bring sweatpants? I go, well, we'll have a uniform for you tonight. So I just kind of walked him through the basics of, of 16-inch, and I said, I know you're supposed to play barehanded. you got to have a glove because if you break a finger, the team's going to kill you. So we're, I'm hitting him grounders and stuff. You know, then he, I, he steps up to the plate. I start tossing balls to him. Immediately he's whacking the ball farther than anybody I've ever seen hit a softball. Because, you know, he's a big guy. He was a great athlete. Mm -hmm. But that night, so, you know, the, the game, of course, there's a huge crowd. The first time he's up, he lines one down the left field line. He's, people forget how fast he was. He's rounding the bases. When he's coming for home, he leaps over the catcher's hat and lands on the plate in full stride. <laughs> and I'm like, and I swear up, like, to this day, people go like, you know, that's probably why he decided to become a baseball player because you had him out of that softball. <laughs> About a couple years, a couple years later, he decided he wanted to try baseball. But he was that kind of an athlete, but also that competitive. He did not want to go out on that baseball field and embarrass himself. You saw that. You, you that was it was very apparent, huh? Who else is going to say meet me five hours before the game? A guy that at that point was already a, a multiple NBA All Star. In fact, in fact, it was the first year after, after they won their first championship. So that would have been what ninety two. Because I got a picture. I'll, I'll send it to you if you want to put it up on your site or whatever. But I got a picture. When he went to bat in the game that night, he, every time he'd go up, he'd say to me, hang on to my ring for me. So I'd be wearing his championship ring while he batted. Then he'd put it back on after he circled the plate.
You got to you got to send that to me. You got to send that to me. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool, Richard. Listen, I appreciate you uh you coming on the podcast. I would love to come have you come back and uh talk more films, more specific stuff. You know, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I respect what you do. Uh, uh, and I, you know, I appreciate your opinion on all your stuff. So I appreciate you coming on. Well, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, Michael. And uh, anytime, man, I love talking to you. Absolutely. And, and hopefully I'll, I'll see you back on the wrap up show. We'll break their fucking balls soon. I would, I would love that. All right, cool, Richard. Thank you for joining me. All right, take care, man. All right. That was awesome. I want to thank our guest, Richard Roper. Thank you for rocking with me on the Iron Rapport Stereo Podcast. Thanks for the stories. Thanks for the insight. Time Rapport Stereo Podcast coming live and direct. Listen, going forward, we got some, just going to be more and more hits. More and more hits. It's the I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Again, thank you, Richard Roper. G Moody, last name rhymes with duty. My name is Michael Rapport, the only podcast that prides itself on no fact-checking. Miles, take us out with the Ain't No Fact-Checking theme song. Haven't heard that in a little while. I'm out. I don't know, would you ever do that? I never do that. Never. We don't roll like that, yo. I mean, what, what, what do you need to do that for? I, I mean, never, ever, ever even considered looking the shit up. Nope. I mean, just in general, it's just not something I do. It's just not something I do.